Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. What is the secret of a long life? Just keep breathing. But that can be difficult. Asthma, COPD, lung cancer, COVID-19, they can interfere. Breathe in, breathe out. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Docs, celebrating our 20th season. Thank you for inviting us into your home as we continue to celebrate our 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Hi, I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger. Ideally, we should not have to think about our breathing. It should just occur. But when something interferes with that process, it really gets our attention. Joining us tonight here in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings, are Dr. Michael Pietela of the Yankton Medical Clinic, Yankton, South Dakota, and Dr. Dana Grosskreutz with the Avera Medical Group Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome, Michael and Dana. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming and answering our questions tonight. So um, both of you are pulmonary specialists, but you're also our experts in critical care medicine. So you've been in the ICUs for a long time, but over this last 18 months, I imagine it has really been something. Give us an update. What are the ICU, what are our, what's happening in our ICUs right now, Dana? Um, we had a very busy uh, last year and a half. Mm -hmm. And like many of the ICUs throughout the country, um, things got better this summer. Our numbers went down. We were able to focus on other conditions mm -hmm. other than just COVID-19. And probably in August, September, things just got really busy again. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have a number of patients now, again, with COVID-19 on ventilators, and it feels much like last winter again. Yeah. It's just been very sad and tragic. Yeah, yeah. Anything different in Yankton for you guys? Similar, yeah. um, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw our peak in late October, November of last year, and then we were hopeful that we would, see, well, we did see a decline, and mm -hmm. then we were hopeful that that decline would continue, but the Delta variant um, has caused another surge in cases, and so um, we're seeing, you know, twice as many patients in the ICU as usual mm -hmm. because of COVID-19, mm -hmm. and we're all hopeful um, that through vaccination and masking and, you know, proper physical distance that we'll see that decline happen again and yeah. hopefully remain. Yeah, yeah, my message, to patients every day is it's not too late. If you haven't been ready to get vaccinated for whatever reason or haven't had the opportunity, let's talk about it. There's still time for you to benefit from this and stay well. Yes, right? definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, over mm -hmm. six billion people in the world have had the vaccine, at least one dose, so we're half the world's population. And yeah. Really safe and mm -hmm. quite effective. And so those people who are saying, I just want to wait and see yeah. if it's safe. It's time. It's time. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and talk to your doctor. I mean, most of us, I know that I got my family signed up as soon as I could. I got my vaccine as soon as I could. So if you trust your doctor, hopefully you can take that with 
um, confidence that that they're doing what they think is best for their own families and themselves as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's get to a few questions. Um, we we had a question from uh, someone here in the studio. Is there any science behind the idea of masks causing you to breathe unhealthy CO two? No, 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 no. Yeah, In fact, thank you. Um, one of my former colleagues at the University of Iowa did a study in this last fall mm-hmm. and actually measured the carbon dioxide levels. He had volunteers from his ICU, respiratory therapists, nurses who mm-hmm. wore masks, and he actually measured the concentration of carbon dioxide mm-hmm. that um, they were breathing, and there was no change with or without a mask. Yeah. Um, so I think that is not true. Yeah. Based on that and other studies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's no evidence to support any harm in yeah. wearing a mask in the majority of patients. You know, mm-hmm. we do. So an N95 respirator mask is yeah. what's most effective with an aerosolized virus like COVID-19, and and so we do do some testing mm-hmm. in patients to make sure they can qualify to use yeah. a, an N95 respirator. But a surgical mm-hmm. mask or a cloth mask um, is even less likely to cause any trouble and it won't it won't cause you to retain carbon dioxide it won't reduce your oxygen levels Um, a lot of times it's a little uncomfortable to Mm -hmm. get used to wearing a mask and I understand that but the idea that it's harmful to you is is not proven by any science yeah Yeah. good we look forward to answering your questions about our breathing process so call 1-888-376-6225 Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. And to encourage questions, those of you who ask questions during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. So. You know, we may get some more questions about COVID-19, but let's talk about um, another really common sleep disorder that we'll learn about a little later in the program. How about sleep apnea or other sleep breathing disorders? Is this something that you see commonly, Michael, in in your clinic? And tell us a little bit about how that usually presents. Sure, so sleep medicine wasn't something I would be, I expected to be really active in in my clinical practice. Um, when I trained, I learned about it, I understood the impacts of it, and that it was a fairly common illness. But you know, I see five to ten people a day out of a 25 to 30 patient schedule um, who have sleep apnea mm-hmm. or risk factors for sleep apnea, and it's a significant illness um, with significantly negative consequences to our health. And it's important for patients who might have concerns or physicians who are talking to patients to be concerned and ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. How is your quality of sleep? Does your spouse or bed partner notice abnormal breathing? Do you suffer from high blood pressure? Mm -hmm. Um, Have you had heart disease or other conditions that are commonly associated with sleep apnea? Certainly being overweight, um, having a large neck, um, those sorts of things contribute smoking. Mm -hmm. But it's important to to discuss that possibility with your um, physician because it's easy to diagnose and it's really, receptive to treatment, Mm -hmm. uh, um, including a variety of different things, but CPAP's very effective and normally really well tolerated. Yeah, yeah. Dana, can you explain to us what happens in obstructive sleep apnea and why it causes the problems it causes? Yeah, how I usually explain that to patients is I say, 
When we fall asleep at night, our whole body relaxes. Mm -hmm. And our muscles relax, and some of the muscles and soft tissues in the back of the throat relax, and those can fall across the airway. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the air still moves, and those vibrate and cause a snoring sound, and sometimes those soft tissues can completely occlude the mm -hmm. airway. And that causes people to stop breathing, or what we call apnea. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes people don't notice that, that notice it right away, sometimes their oxygen levels start to drop, but at some point their body realizes that they've stopped breathing and mm -hmm. they startle and wake up and start breathing again. But what that leads to ultimately is poor quality of sleep yeah. because every time they're really falling into a good deep sleep and then waking up, they're mm -hmm. just not getting that consistent restorative sleep that they really need. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I explain it yeah. to And I often patients. see patients come in just saying, doc, I'm so tired, mm -hmm. I just don't, I feel like I'm not getting sleep, and I, and they say, well, I don't wake up through the night when I start asking them those questions. You, you don't fully wake up, right? The sort of the primitive part of the brain wakes up and reminds you to start breathing again, mm -hmm. but you probably don't realize that you're awakening sometimes a hundred times an hour in some cases. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of those people feel a lot better as soon as we get them on CPAP. Yeah, yeah. another point to make is you don't have to stop 100 times an hour for right. it to be clinically mm -hmm. significant mm -hmm. or impact your quality of life. The, that apnea hypopnea score doesn't always correlate with sure. how you feel, yes. and so it might be only a few times an hour, six, eight, 10, mm -hmm. 15 times an hour, and it can still have a big impact. So yeah. if there's clinical suspicion and comorbid other illnesses associated, um, a sleep study is something to to discuss yeah. with your provider. Yeah. And we do a lot of them at home now. Right? Yes. Yeah. The vast majority. To do. What would you say to someone who said, well, I, I tried a CPAP 20 years ago. I hated mm -hmm. it. I turned it in a week later. I'm not doing that again. Are, I, are, is stuff better? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I frequently tell my patients, okay, let's give this another try. Mm -hmm. Because like everything, um, we've made a lot of advancements in right. the machines. They're smaller. They're mm -hmm. quieter. There's so many different varieties of masks and sizes and styles. Um, and I always tell my patients, I don't care so much what mask you wear, mm -hmm. as long as it's something that's comfortable and right. you will wear. Um, for the most part, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I often tell people that they should really give it a try again, because we've made a lot of advancements in yeah. sleep apnea. I agree 100%. I've had you know, dozens of patients who failed um, or just weren't comfortable 10, 15 years ago, who now are very well able to use the new devices. We've mm -hmm. come a long ways. Yeah, good. Yeah. We're getting some questions in, so mm -hmm. we'll pivot back to some questions, some about COVID-19 and vaccination. Uh, we had a caller who said, my sister won't get the COVID shot due to long-term side effects. Do you have thoughts or do you have advice for the caller? What might she be able to tell her sister if she's worried about her? Um. I would reassure your sister mm -hmm. that uh, at this point we're not aware of really any long-term side effects yeah. of the vaccine. Um, I think that the long-term side effects of getting the virus far outweigh any long-term side effects we know about from the yeah. vaccine. Um, the number of patients I've taken care of with COVID-19 and that I've lost to COVID-19 yeah. um, are many, and I have not seen one patient get hospitalized from the COVID vaccine. Yeah. So from my perspective, there's no comparison. Yeah. And really there's not, even in theory on the basic science level, it's hard to come up with 
a theoretical way that this vaccine could cause long-term side effects outside that window of a few days. Right. No, I'm in agreement. Yeah. Um, I think the point to be made is the vaccine has been given to, again, six billion people in the world. Mm -hmm. And short-term um, side effects are not unexpected, just mm -hmm. like with mm -hmm. any vaccine. Mm -hmm. But they're, again, short-term. Um, infertility, maybe that's her sister's concern. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. Completely untrue. Uh, yeah. There's no possible way that an mRNA vaccine could affect um, any of your genes, right. much less your reproductive organs. Right. So infertility is not an issue. Um, yeah. That's misinformation. Mm -hmm. um, and we have plenty of evidence now that it's safe mm -hmm. um, and effective. And in pregnant women, you know, we're seeing a surge of them yes. in the ICUs with the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. And it's it's devastating for so anyone, yeah. but, but even more so, I shouldn't say more so, but e it's even harder to see that when we have a safe and effective way to pre yeah. prevent it. Yeah. yeah. Along similar lines, there was a caller um, from Sioux Falls who asked, have there been any deaths from the COVID vaccine? Are you aware of any deaths coming from the COVID vaccine, Michael? Not I have not seen any. Yeah. yeah. Have there been any in the world? that have been attributed? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but not that, I've not, not seen that one. Known. I don't think there's been any proof that a vaccine caused a death. Right. Someone may have gotten the vaccine and then subsequently had a life-ending illness, right. but it'd be hard for me to understand how the vaccine could cause a death. You know, even mm -hmm. in these patients who get heart inflammation, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. It's self-limited. It right. gets better right. within a a day or two or three. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I don't think there's any proof the vaccines caused any deaths. Yeah. Good. Um, we had a caller who said a friend with COPD and allergies claims their physician told them not to get the COVID vaccine. Is there a good reason why a patient might have been told that from your perspective, Dana? No, yeah. I, not that I can think of. I've told every one of my patients with COPD and allergies to get the vaccine. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes there's a element of timing it. Some of my patients who might be on immunosuppressive medicines sure. or prednisone, we may time the vaccine so that they have the best effect from it. Mm -hmm. um, but there aren't, I, I, don't, I don't know of a reason to tell someone with COPD or allergies or any lung conditions not to get the yeah. vaccine. Yeah, um, I mean, contraindications are really almost unheard of right. for this vaccine. If anything, they're considered in the high-risk category. Yeah. Yes. should be the first in line yes. right. to get the vaccine. Yeah, good. Um, are there any drugs approved by the FDA to treat COVID? There, there are not. The no. vaccine is the only approved treatment for COVID yeah. because mm -hmm. so whenever we studied medicines or mm -hmm. vaccines, you know, first do no harm. And so right. the safety trials are the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And the vaccine is proven safe and mm -hmm. now proven effective. And that's why the FDA has approved it. No other treatment out there, whether it's remdesivir or ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, mm -hmm. none of them have been proven to be yeah. effective right. um, and safe, and mm -hmm. so they're not FDA approved. Um, and that's just the simple fact. There's no, you know, medicine doesn't cross the line of politics. This is mm -hmm. science. Um, and mm -hmm. if they mm -hmm. were, if we had proof that they were, then the yeah. FDA would approve them. Um, yeah. But they just aren't, they aren't proven to be clearly effective in mm -hmm. patients like vaccine is. Yeah. And monoclonal antibodies, though we're using them frequently, are still under emergency authorization, yes. is my understanding, yes. correct? Yeah. Yeah, yes. and they have some effect in the right subset of patients mm -hmm. at the right timing, but mm -hmm. not nearly the effectiveness of the vaccine. No. That's yes. the critical thing to understand, yeah. is your, your, your antibodies are much better when you're vaccinated than yeah. any other condition. Right. Even mm -hmm. having the virus doesn't give you the protection of the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Respiratory therapist Derek Johnson is recognized as a healthcare hero at the Brookings Hospital. Derek works with patients who suffer from sleep breathing disorders, including sleep apnea. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael spoke with him for tonight's program. So CPAP by definition is continuous positive airway pressure, but that's just one of the things we use in um, treating sleep apnea. There's also BiPAP and something called AESV or auto servo ventilation. So there's multiple things that can be used to treat sleep apnea. CPAP is a pressure that keeps the airway open and allows the patient to breathe normally from the airway getting smaller or there's adipose tissue inside the airway, um, also just allowing the patient to ventilate. Derek says men are 45 times more likely to have sleep apnea than women. However, that shouldn't prevent female patients from seeking further treatment. So the home sleep study, which I can demonstrate here in a little bit, is the ability to do a sleep study at home. There are some differences between an in-lab sleep study and a home sleep study. Uh, when you do a home sleep study, you're doing it in your home environment. So you've got that comfort level of sleeping in your own bed and your own environment. Uh, so a lot of people are able to sleep better. When you do it in lab, there's a lot more things that can be done um, as far as treatment for sleep apnea. Brookings Health System has home-like sleep study rooms so patients feel more comfortable while undergoing sleep apnea tests. Through the pulse oximeter, the PTAF, or pressure transducer airflow, nasal cannula thing, thermal couple, how much you're moving around, what position you are, your effort of breathing, we can create a, a picture of if you have sleep apnea or if you don't. Mild sleep apnea is if you have anywhere between 5 and 15 events per hour. Moderate sleep apnea is if you have between 15 and 30. That's every hour, and anything over 30 is considered severe. So if you think 30 respiratory events per hour, that's every two minutes you're kind of waking up. You might not be fully awake, but just imagine if tonight when you were sleeping, if somebody was waking you up every two minutes, by the morning you're going to be tired, you're going to be exhausted, you might have a headache, you might have a dry mouth from breathing through your mouth. Great. We did have a uh, call come in about um, sleep apnea and CPAP. A caller asked, if you are on 24-hour oxygen, do you still need a CPAP machine? Would you say that, Dana? Well, let's assume this caller does have sleep apnea. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we confuse um, the role of oxygen and yeah. the role of CPAP. Mm -hmm. What oxygen does is it provides more oxygen than what you get in the, in the room, in the regular air that you breathe. And so for people who have lung problems, giving that extra oxygen helps get that oxygen into the blood a little bit more effectively. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what happens when people have CPAP is it's not so much a problem that they're not getting, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, when people have sleep apnea, <laughs> it's not so much a problem that they're not getting the oxygen in, it's that they're stopping breathing mm -hmm. and they're occluding their airway. So a person can wear oxygen and try to blow all the oxygen they want in, mm. but if the passage is blocked, it doesn't get there. Right. So the most uh, effective treatment if someone is actually stopping breathing is CPAP or some sort of machine like that mm -hmm. that actually kind of stents open their airway and keeps mm -hmm. it open so that the air can get in and out. Right. So it's actually two different, different treatments for different 
uh, lung conditions. Yeah. yeah. Oxygen's not a treatment for sleep apnea, yeah. and CPAP's not a treatment for low oxygen, yeah. yep. except in that patient who has low oxygen only because of sleep apnea. Right. Yeah. So, and sometimes they're used together if people mm -hmm. have yep. more complex Plenty yep. of illness, patients but, who have mm -hmm. COPD or pulmonary fibrosis or pulmonary hypertension yep. mm -hmm. and sleep apnea who need both. Right. But yeah. you can't correct sleep apnea with oxygen. Yeah. What about some of these things that we might see ads for for like a dental appliance or something like that? Is there any good evidence for that, Michael? There is, yeah. actually. Um, in the right subset of patients mm -hmm. um, who meet the criteria, and your sleep medicine doc will know that, mm -hmm. um, an oral appliance, mandibular advancement devices being the most proven, could be a great treatment for you. Mm -hmm. um, CPAP's still the most effective and proven mm -hmm. treatment. And then um, we're in the process of trying to offer something called a hypoglossal nerve stimulator in Yankton. I, I think in Sioux Falls yep. there's some option for that too. And that's a device in the right, again, subset mm -hmm. of patients that meet the criteria where they implant a battery and run a little um, tr uh, wire into the hypoglossal nerve at the base of your tongue that you turn on at bedtime and keeps the airway open. So there are other options. Mm -hmm. What I always tell my patients when I'm in, uh, first interviewing them is, you know, be prepared to try CPAP because, yeah. again, it's the most proven and effective treatment for the most patients. Yeah. But there are options. Yeah, great. Um, we had a caller who was diagnosed with a nodule on the lung. Can you talk a little bit about what, what does lung nodule mean and, and what might this patient be preparing themselves to mm -hmm. go through? Dana? Yes. Yeah. We see these so commonly. Yes. Oh, I was just man. going to yeah. say there are so many patients <laughs> yeah. who have nodules in their lungs. And mm -hmm. especially in this part of the country, um, we have uh, a fungus in this part of the country called histoplasmosis. So many of us will inhale this. And if you were to get CAT scans on everybody in the upper Midwest, mm -hmm. you would see a lot of lung nodules. Mm -hmm. And so our job as physicians and as pulmonary specialists mm -hmm. is to figure out which lung nodules are just an old healed infection or mm -hmm. a scar and which lung nodules could potentially be a cancer. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's what everyone thinks of when they hear that they have a nodule on their right. lung. And a small percentage of those nodules really are cancer. Mm -hmm. And so our job is to figure out which ones those are yeah. and effectively diagnose them and, and treat them. Right. But there are a number of um, conditions, you know, um, like we said, infections, scarring, you can have lymph nodes in your mm -hmm. lungs, um, blood vessel malformations. There are so yeah. many different things that can cause a nodule. So I think the best thing for this caller is to mm -hmm. talk with their doctor. Right. Um, and, and if needed, um, discuss it with a specialist. Yeah. yeah. What I like to remind people is we had a huge trial of over 50,000 patients who are high risk for yes. lung cancer who underwent mm -hmm. CT screening and over 90 plus percent of the nodules found were not cancer. Right. Over 90 percent. And so right. even in a high risk patient population, the odds that a spot on your lung is cancer is low. Right. So we have to keep that in mind um, mm -hmm. and patients need to be reassured. It needs to be followed up. Right. And they, I, I'd advise seeing a pulmonary specialist if you have that found mm -hmm. in your lungs, unless it's definitive what it is, calcification right. or things, yes. but, but a reminder to patients, it's scary to hear you have a yeah. spot on your lung, but the vast majority of times it's something benign, not, right. not mm -hmm. worrisome or troublesome. doesn't mean we don't need to watch it, mm -hmm. uh, but the likelihood of the cancer is much less. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in primary care, I see this so often in people we weren't actually looking for anything in yeah. their lung for, you know, maybe yes. we even did a CAT scan of their belly for belly pain and we see a lung nodule and now we kind of got to sort through mm -hmm. this and we have good guidance based on 
characteristics of that yes. finding on CT scan, but it does, yeah. you know, and you want people to not overreact to that finding if they read it on their CAT scan. Just one, talk yes. to your doctor about one it. One thing I'd promote just quickly is mm -hmm. CT screening for lung cancer. Mm -hmm. That does appear to be very beneficial. Yeah. So if you are a high-risk patient who's had at least 30 pack years of smoking, who's mm -hmm. between 55 and 80, who's still smoking or quit within 15 years, and those guidelines can be found online, talk to your physician about a low-dose CT screen for mm -hmm. lung cancer. Yeah. They are helpful. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I was a skeptic early. I wanted more data, mm -hmm. but the data is pretty strong. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, we had another uh, caller who asked uh, if inhaling marijuana smoke can damage lung tissue, especially in an ex-smoker. So can you comment, Michael, on do we have good data on marijuana smokers so and lung we, disease? We've discussed this topic here before. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was you and I or, or you and or myself and someone else, but inhaling any smoke, whether mm -hmm. it's from a cigarette or a marijuana cigarette or some other carbon-based fuel that's burning in the environment is not helpful to your lungs. It's, mm -hmm. it's potentially harmful. Sure. Much fewer people smoke excessive amounts of marijuana. I shouldn't say excessive. We don't, we don't have as much information about those. Um, we know vaping, CBD mm -hmm. seem to cause some major problems mm -hmm. for people right away. Mm -hmm. um, but my expectation is if people were to smoke marijuana cigarettes at 20 a day, like they do yeah. regular cigarettes, they'd see just as much damage. Um, yeah. and so if he's a former smoker, or she who has lung damage already, I'd advise them against inhaling yeah. anything that yes. they don't have to. Yeah, good. Um, Dana, we have a man who's an ex-smoker who asks if COPD is when you can breathe in well but not out. So can you explain what what is COPD and 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 how does that present? And Yes, well, that caller is correct yeah. in that um, assessment. Um, the definition of COPD is um, a patient who has respiratory symptoms, mm -hmm. so cough or shortness of breath or chest tightness, um, a person who's been exposed to smoke, mm -hmm. whether that's cigarette smoke or cooking over open fires for a number of years sure. or some kind of smoke exposure, and like this caller said, having a hard time blowing the air out. Mm -hmm. And that's something we measure with what we call pulmonary function mm -hmm. tests, which are done in our clinics, but in many of the communities yeah. throughout the area, mm -hmm. they do the um, spirometry. And um, what we see in patients who have COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is they have a hard time blowing the air out hard and yeah. fast. Mm -hmm. So they might notice that it's hard to blow out a candle or blow up a balloon, and we measure that. Mm -hmm. um, their, their, their defect or their difficulty with those breathing tests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. How do we treat COPD, Michael? Well, first is diagnosing it. Yeah. And I think touching on what Dana mm -hmm. mentioned is if you have risk factors for COPD and you have symptoms mm -hmm. of cough or shortness of breath, you need to have a spirometry um, or a complete pulmonary function mm -hmm. test done. Sometimes we cross those two and, and they're yeah. similar. And so the first step is getting it diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, that means undergoing that testing. And then um, it's avoiding whatever's causing the, the COPD is the number number one treatment. Right. So if you're a smoker, yes. helping you discontinue smoking. If you're in an occupation where you're exposed to particulate matter or smoke, trying to avoid that or mm -hmm. wear a mask. And then if you're symptomatic enough, um, this, the, the, the gold standard of treatment for, sleep, for COPD persistent is long-acting bronchodilators, mm -hmm. inhalers that you take yeah. every day, regardless of your symptoms, which mm -hmm. have been proven to number one, reduce your symptoms, improve your quality of life from a shortness of breath and cough perspective, but also reduce exacerbations where yeah. you're having bronchitis or pneumonia or right. at risk of hospitalization. Right. But the first step is if you're at risk and having symptoms, get mm -hmm. tested. And then if you do have the condition, 
get away from what's causing it mm -hmm. um, and, and look at treatments. Right. I've heard both of you say symptoms are a part of the diagnosis. I've had mm -hmm. a few patients who years ago they had an x-ray that said mm -hmm. COPD and so yes. they thought they've had COPD right. and I say, well, have you, have you ever used an inhaler? And you know, if you don't have symptoms, you don't have the disease in this case, right? right. I That's often get, re I get referrals <laughs> yeah. for x-ray shows mm -hmm. hyperinflation or COPD, COPD. and the mm -hmm. patient has zero risk factors right. and zero symptoms yes. and you do a spirometry and it's normal and yeah. you just yeah. ignore that Good. interpretation. Yeah. yeah. How does COPD differ from asthma, which can be similar in some ways, Dana? Yes, I often explain this to patients by saying that both COPD, asthma, emphysema, mm -hmm. I would include in there, all of those conditions, patients have a hard time blowing out, mm -hmm. like the previous caller described. Yeah. My patients who have asthma um, tend to um, sometimes have allergies mm -hmm. or other things associated with it like that. Um, frequently asthma patients get better when they use albuterol mm -hmm. and patients who purely have asthma don't tend to have low oxygen levels. The right. problem is with the airways getting tight mm -hmm. but not any problem with the gas exchange within the lungs. Sure. Mm -hmm. Patients who have more what we, we classically call COPD or emphysema, those patients have pr probably had some smoke exposure mm -hmm. by definition. Those patients don't necessarily get better when they use mm -hmm. albuterol or a, a short-acting bronchodilator or a medicine for asthma. And uh, those patients will often have problems with gas exchange mm -hmm. and so have low oxygen levels and require oxygen at some or all parts of the day. Yeah. So that's kind of how I distinguish those two. And sometimes there's overlap. Right. There are many patients who have features of both. Right. Right. Um, interestingly, we had a viewer on Facebook who asked, can we please discuss alpha-1 antitrypsin de deficiency? This patient had a double lung transplant mm. and went for years without a proper diagnosis. Mm. So um, can you tell us what this deficiency is? Usually it causes sure. COPD or that type of right. syndrome, right? Yeah. So antitrypsin is a, mm. is a molecule in our lungs that breaks down things that damage our lungs. And so our lungs are fighting against damage all day long because um, we're breathing in mm -hmm. stuff in the air always. Um, right. And when you're deficient in that protein, um, then you're prone to damage to your lungs, can mm -hmm. happen to your liver and things too, but most commonly your lungs, mm -hmm. and especially if you smoke. So right. that's where it has the biggest impact. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not a common disease because right. it's in inherited in a way that both your parents have to have it and basically don't know it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. They don't know they have it. Right. And so then they pass on this gene to you, mm -hmm. um, rarely, you know, 25% of the time or less, and then that can manifest in your adult state. And mm -hmm. so the recommendation amongst um, pulmonologists and and care providers is if someone has COPD, yeah. test them for alpha-1. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a cheap and inexpensive test sure. and, and it's not gonna catch it in most, but mm -hmm. if it does in some, then it's not necessarily that we can prevent them having to need a lung transplant, but if they're smoking, we can get them to stop sooner. Mm -hmm. um, there's some treatments like replacement of the alpha-1 enzyme, they're of limited benefit, that's a whole other show to discuss that, <laughs> um, but recognizing you have it yeah. sooner than later is very helpful. So especially in patients who have a strong family history of COPD, right. um, if they have any symptoms to suggest that they have COPD at a younger age, right. get tested. Yeah, good. Yeah. Just talk to your doc, we can get it done. Yeah. yeah. COVID-19 seems to have become a part of our lives. Vaccines are safe and work well, but what is the current situation with the virus? Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt investigated. COVID-19 cases in South Dakota have seen an increase recently. 
We were in a very good place in the early part of the summer with much fewer cases, but in the beginning of August, the cases really started to trend up sharply and the hospitalizations went up as well. So I want to emphasize this isn't just people who had a cold or had mild illness. This was a, um, an increase similar to the one we saw last fall where people were getting sick and being in the hospitals. Sanford Health infectious disease doctor Susan Hoover says the best thing you can do is to get your COVID-19 vaccine. You may not be 100% protected from ever getting COVID, so having a positive test swab from your nose, the protection against actual illness and severe illness remains excellent. People with a compromised immune system may be able to get a third dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Those are people with either a natural condition or a medication that's causing a pretty significant immune deficiency. So that would be things like uh, cancer, who are now go undergoing chemotherapy, an organ transplant or bone marrow transplant, somebody taking steroids or other medications that would suppress the immune system. But the data for a third dose or booster in the general population still need to be submitted by the manufacturers and make its way through the system. So the FDA needs to review it. And then the ACIP, ACIP has to decide whether or not to recommend it. Hoover expects children under the age of 12 should be able to get a vaccine later this fall or in early winter. So the only way to protect them for now is for us adults who are around the kids to get vaccinated. And then once a vaccine becomes available for children, I would strongly recommend that you have your child vaccinated. Hoover says it's recommended pregnant women get their shots. Pregnant women have been found to have a higher risk of needing an ICU, intensive care unit, needing mechanical ventilation or even of death. So. If you are pregnant, you are at higher risk, and therefore, of course, your baby is also. There is no connection between these vaccines and either female or male infertility. It's a rumor that really has no basis in fact. And if you have questions, Hoover says you should talk to your doctor. The most convincing thing to many people is actually having their own doctor say, I recommend that you get this vaccine, and I believe that it will be good and not bad for you. And, and there's no substitute for that. So what are you guys hearing from your patients who haven't gotten the vaccine yet? Are, are there, um, is there a common reason why you're hearing that and how do you advise them? Michael? So um, I, I think it's appropriate to have concerns, yeah. right? Anytime someone's going to recommend anything for you to put in your body, any pill, any shot, anything, um, understand why and what are the risks and the benefits of it. And the simple fact with the vaccine is it's been given again to six billion people across the world um, and it's been proven to be safe. And if you look at the current trend, 90 plus percent of patients who are sick in the hospital are wow. unvaccinated and the other 10% are breakthrough events because not enough people are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people say, well, I have a friend who had the vaccine and they still got the virus. Yes, yeah. that can happen. It's, it's not because the vaccine caused them to be more at risk quite the opposite. And right. so I just ask them to tell me why they're concerned. Yeah. I explain to them, you know, even if you feel like you're not likely to get very sick, you could pass it on to someone who is 
likely to get very sick. And so do it for others as much as for yourself. And I reiterate that it's safe. There are side effects. I don't try yeah. to downplay those because there are, mm -hmm. um, but they're temporary and yeah. they're much less severe than having the illness in yeah. the vast majority of patients. So I, I just try to, to have a conversation about why they're concerned and then try to offer um, um, information that helps them be less concerned. Yeah, good. Any other common concerns that you're hearing, Dina? Um, a couple of reasons that I've found people haven't been getting their vaccines. Some of my patients have said, well, if I get sick, you'll take care of me. Um, what I tell them is, yes, I will try to take mm -hmm. care of you, but if you meet me in the intensive care unit, there are limited things I can do at that point. Yeah. And the vaccine is far more effective, like we were saying, is far more effective than any of the medicines or ventilator or supportive therapies yeah. that I will give in the intensive care unit or in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So that's one point I make to them. Uh, I think many people have an opinion by this point right. as to whether they want the vaccine or not. I still keep asking, because there are some people out sure. there who just uh, have not thought about it mm -hmm. or not had time in their lives or don't know what to do. Right. And so I still keep asking all of my patients because some have even said, well, no one suggested it to me or I don't know how to do it. Right. And then at that point I say, well, I am suggesting it to you. I am recommending you yeah. do it and I will take you down the hallway right. and get it. And so there are still a few people like that that yeah. just haven't gotten the information or sure. the opportunity hasn't been there. Yeah. And people kind of had to go out of their way early in the mm -hmm, year to mm -hmm. sign up for an event or however their communities were doing it. It's easy now. I yes. mean, we have vaccine in our clinics. Every pharmacy has a vaccine. We can get it for you. Um, so yeah, agree. We just got to keep making sure people ha know that that it's there for them when they're ready. So um, we have a caller from Millbank who asked if he should wear a mask in public even though he has had his two COVID vaccines. Michael, are you wearing your mask in public right now? Depends on the situation. I am yeah. fully vaccinated. Yeah. My children and family mm -hmm. are as well. Um, it depends on the situation. Um, mm -hmm. And so masks are effective at uh, preventing transmission of COVID-19. Um, certain masks are better than others. Um, mm -hmm. Social distance or physical distance can be helpful. Hand washing, I saw from a poll from SDSU, yeah. was believed to be a highly effective way. And it's really not as effective as right. masks and things because it's an aerosolized virus. Yeah. So, so in the right setting, where you can't be physically distanced, you don't know the vaccination status of the people around right. you, you're indoors, um, yep. masks are helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, especially in settings like schools, I know yeah. that that's kind of a polarizing issue and, and as a physician, I'm going to promote what I know uh, based on the science. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, it's wise to do that, mm -hmm. um, um, especially if you're higher risk. But yeah. again, uh, masks are not 100% effective by any means. And so the more things we can do, like vaccinating mm -hmm. as many people as possible, limiting our exposure indoors in close quarters and wearing masks is yeah. better. So I, I would still promote mask wearing in the right setting. Yeah, yeah, especially with rates as high as they are now again. Mm -hmm. um, we have an emailer who asked, is there a timing element with getting the COVID vaccine when you were taking Zolaire monthly for asthma? Did you say anything about that, Dana? Um, I have a number of patients who are on medicines like Zolaire, Dupixent, mm -hmm. um, Nucala, Placendra. Mm -hmm. um, what I have been doing, I don't know that we necessarily need to time that. Mm -hmm. We haven't done the studies to really determine the effectiveness sure. of timing there. So I think the important thing is to get the vaccine. Mm 
some of my rheumatology colleagues have been timing the vaccine so they give it, you know, once the, oh, if the patient's on methotrexate or something, they're getting every couple of weeks, they'll time it so that they're catching it at the trough the of end. that, towards, yeah. towards the end of that yeah. medicine's effectiveness. So theoretically, you could do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people have maybe held the Zolair and given the shot. But I think the most important thing is just that they get it. And I don't yeah. think we have studies to guide us yeah. there. Yeah, good. Um, Michael, does the booster COVID vaccine have to be the same company as the original? What are <laughs> so, their recommendations? We were right discussing now? this yeah. earlier. And, and currently, the FDA just approved the Pfizer vaccine as a booster. Um, so Meaning a third dose. The third yes. dose, right. Yep. So, mm-hmm. so we talk about... Well, the third dose in immunocompromised patients um, has been mm-hmm. f- Pfizer as well, but now they're saying everyone over 65 or those who are at increased risk, which if you look at the increased risk, it's the majority of Americans because mm-hmm. it's hypertension and obesity and, right. and things that a lot of our patients have. Yes. Um, but right now the FDA is suggesting if you had Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer should be your booster. Mm-hmm. If you had Moderna, Moderna, wait until Moderna right. is approved. And I think, like, well, I can't speculate, but hopefully that will be soon. Yeah. Um, my own personal opinion is I'm not sure it should matter that much. Right. They're both in mRNA theory, vaccines. In theory, it probably shouldn't. It shouldn't this is just how they've studied much. it, and so that's how they're going right. to recommend I mean, it. Yeah. The idea is to get the mRNA vaccine, have your cells make the spike protein, and your body produce antibodies to it, and then it's out of your. I mean, it's out of your system as soon as you make yeah. the spike protein. So. Yeah. I would. I. I personally am hoping for to see a recommendation soon about John, people who got the Johnson yep. and Johnson vaccine and possibly coming. having the a second data, dose. The data. The yeah. data is trickling in, and it looks like it's really, really, really effective yeah. with yeah. a second like a dose. Second dose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Okay. So keep, stay tuned. Um, let's move to some non-COVID questions. <laughs> can uh, Can you, Dana, talk about chronic eosinophilic pneumonia? Yes, it's a fairly rare condition. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to see it in patients who might have some other underlying disease like asthma. Mm -hmm. Um, The frequent situation where I I will see it is a patient who's had asthma for years and suddenly their asthma is very poorly controlled. Mm -hmm. And what happens is often these patients have more eosinophils or allergy cells in their body. Mm -hmm. We might detect that in a blood test or we might detect that if we did uh, a bronchoscopy Mm -hmm. where we um, put a scope down into a patient's lung Mm -hmm. and um, do some washings and see eosinophils there. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a a fairly rare condition, but one that can sometimes complicate other conditions like asthma. Treatable, um, we frequently will give the patient uh, prednisone or Mm -hmm. steroids and get it under control. Mm -hmm. But it is something that we often need to monitor. um, And once they have a response, um, continue to monitor, because sometimes they'll have flares and things will get worse again, so. um, Yeah, these are the unusual things that as a primary care doc, I think of really with the outliers. So someone who's done well for a lot of years and then suddenly is having a lot more problems. We should think about some of these less common things. Um, a caller from Alcester asked about the harms of untreated sleep apnea other than being sleepy. So yeah. what other things yeah. might correlate with untreated sleep apnea, Michael? Yeah, so there's lots of speculation out there what can <laughs> sleep apnea cause. The science shows us very clearly that high blood pressure mm-hmm. and yes. sleep apnea are very closely connected. And so in patients who are not responding well to treatment for high blood pressure or those who have high blood pressure and risk factors for sleep apnea, male sex, large neck, mm-hmm. high BMI, should be studied because, again, it will worsen that. And sleep 
bad or if high blood pressure contributes to all sorts of problems from mm -hmm. um, heart disease and, and right. strokes to, to kidney um, problems and otherwise. Um, there's some data um, about AFib. Um, if you have an irregular mm -hmm. heart rhythm and sleep apnea, you're much more likely to have trouble controlling your atrial fibrillation okay. if you don't manage your sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So patients with heart rhythm disturbances should be looked at for sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Heart failure. Um, mm -hmm. Patients who have heart failure and sleep apnea together are likely to have more difficulty managing their heart failure right. if they don't manage their sleep apnea. And then uh, there's lots of other things that probably it, it it doesn't help with, but yeah. we don't have the science to say definitively that if you treat the sleep apnea, the diabetes gets better or mm -hmm. or, or or memory problems. But cognition oh, and, yeah. and mood disorders, that's another mm -hmm. big thing. If you're having trouble with anxiety or mm -hmm. depression um, and you're at risk for sleep apnea, get that diagnosed yeah. because you won't control your mood disorder if your sleep is poor. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Um, we had an emailer ask, can we discuss what emphysema is, how it's acquired, and how it impacts your body? So we talked a little bit about COPD. Is emphysema a different disease, or are they interchangeable? Emphysema is, falls under that, uh, that characterization mm -hmm. of COPD. Mm -hmm. um, typically, when we go back to the years when we trained, when we talked about COPD, we'd talk about patients who had emphysema or patients who had chronic bronchitis. Mm -hmm. And again, getting back to COPD, all these patients have a hard time blowing the air out, have been exposed mm -hmm. to smoke and have symptoms. Um, our patients who have emphysema tend to have low oxygen levels, um, be quite short of breath, mm -hmm. um, sometimes are a little bit cachectic uh, or can lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, and our patients with bronchitis tend to have lots of sputum mm -hmm. and get sick and need antibiotics and, mm -hmm. um, and also can have low oxygen levels too. So mm -hmm. it, it falls within that COPD diagnosis. Now, another place that emphysema often comes up is, if, like we were mentioning before, if someone gets a CT scan. Yeah. So the radiologist might mention emphysema on the CT scan. Mm -hmm. And what that's indicating is people who have a hard time blowing the air out, sometimes their lungs are like a big balloon. Mm -hmm. And you know, usually we will exhale and our balloon will shrink and we'll breathe in. But some patients who can't get the air out, then they take another breath and they're like a balloon that just keeps expanding. Yeah. And so that will be seen on a CT scan or an X-ray sure. that a patient's lungs are large. Or they might look at the CAT scan and see areas where the lung has been destroyed mm -hmm. and they'll call that emphysema. Mm -hmm. So there's a few scenarios where that term emphysema is used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. good. We've got a couple minutes left and a few questions, so we'll see if we can get through all of these. A lady had French polio 22 years ago. Is it safe to get the COVID vaccine? Mm -hmm. You bet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, mm -hmm. polio is a completely different virus, mm -hmm. and there's no chance that the, the COVID vaccine will activate um, polio. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's, if she has especially any long-term effects yeah. of having had polio, um, the vaccine's even more important than in the yeah. general population. Yeah. But, yes. This is a hard one to answer quickly, but we had an emailer ask, can you offer suggestions to family members who are getting news from, quote, alternative news sources when trying to encourage them to be vaccinated? This is hard for families sometimes, yes. isn't it, Dana? Yes. Yeah. I, don't, I feel like as a doctor, I don't have the answer yes. to trying to overcome some of, some of this, but. What I, I, and I will have these same conversations yeah. with my patients. Yeah. And I'll say, the vaccines at this point um, have unfortunately 
become political and people um, are emotional mm -hmm. about them. Yeah. And so, um, and sometimes people are dug in on their particular stance. When I suggest that a patient gets a vaccine, I don't feel like I'm taking a political side. Right. I just don't want anybody else to die. Yeah. And that's all it comes down to for me. Mm -hmm. And so if I have friends or family members, that's kind of my approach that I take. I don't want you to die. Um, and I think this would be the most important way to protect you from, from dying. Yeah, good. Just so that. I try to just be, make it be simple. Frank and yeah. open. Yeah, okay. Few seconds left. Can you tell us anything about the new COVID variant? Mm. This is all new. I think we all developing, you know. Right. I, I think what we can tell people mm -hmm. is the vaccine appears to protect us against variants. Mm -hmm. um, and natural infection may not right. because the variant because the changes. isn't, mm -hmm. isn't you know, the spike protein isn't different <clears throat> on the variants at this point. Yeah. And so the mRNA and the vaccines um, provide protection on the basis of your antibodies regardless mm -hmm. of whether it's the original COVID-19, the Delta, yeah. the Lambda, the Mu, or whatever might come All down right. the pike. Good. The winner of our drawing tonight is Diane S. from South Dakota. Thank you, Diane, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Thank you for joining us this week for On Call. I'm Lindsay Myers. And I'm Rick Holm. September, fall is in the air, and what we might call respiratory season is nearly upon us. Respiratory season refers to the colder months in which we spend much of our time indoors, maybe October through March. Normally, this season correlates with when we see high rates of typically seasonal respiratory infections, such as influenza and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Living through the COVID-19 pandemic has given us knowledge we can use to greatly decrease the spread of all respiratory infections. During the 2020-2021 respiratory season, rates of influenza were at historic lows in South Dakota and across the country due to the measures we took to decrease the spread of COVID-19. So what are the lessons learned? First and foremost, we should learn that when we are sick with respiratory symptoms, we should avoid spreading our illness to others. It remains essential that anyone experiencing symptoms of cough, fever, or cold symptoms be evaluated and consider tested for COVID-19, influenza, and possibly other infections to ensure avoidance of spread. Second, if you are sick, even if you have tested negative for COVID-19, try to avoid spreading germs to others. We should especially avoid contact with those most vulnerable to respiratory illnesses. This includes the very young and the very old and those who have suppressed immune systems or chronic lung disease. If you must be around others, keep distance when possible. Cover your mouth and nose when coughing or sneezing and at best wear a mask to keep those respiratory droplets out of the air. I now cringe to think of years past when I would power through my own common cold and see patients without a mask. I know I can do better in the future. Finally, vaccines remain one of our best tools for infection prevention. Of course, vaccination against COVID-19 is crucial and has proven to be highly safe and effective. But let's not forget other respiratory vaccines. 
it is time to think about getting your annual influenza vaccine. And if you are 65 years old or more, or if you have any medical problems increasing your risk for bacterial pneumonia, you should ask your healthcare provider about a pneumococcal vaccine. We have the tools to keep ourselves and others healthy during the respiratory season. I, for one, hope that lessons learned during a respiratory viral pandemic might help us all do better in the future. Thank you to our guests, Dana and Michael, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about our breathing concerns. One more final reminder, we are entering the influenza season here in the upper Midwest. If you're getting a COVID vaccine, it is safe to get the flu vaccine at the same time. So please make your plans and get your flu vaccine soon. As we continue to celebrate our 20th season, we invite you, our viewers, to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life please email or mail your story to the addresses on the screen. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to listen, look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for inviting us into your home as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. We may develop addictions to medicinal and recreational drugs, alcohol, even eating or not eating, the symptoms and what we can do to help ourselves or our friends or family, alcoholism and addiction. Next time on Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Healing Words Foundation board member Dr. Ken Bartholomew from Pierre is nearing the completion of his kayak challenge on the Missouri River. He began last fall, and despite three cancer surgeries, he continued his journey this spring and summer. He looks forward to paddling the final leg soon. I instituted this challenge last fall to try to keep Prairie Dock on the air, and we need your donations to help do that. This will help keep advertisement-free medical education coming to the public. Won't you accept the challenge and support us with 10 cents, 25 cents, 50 or even a dollar per mile of the 411 miles I plan to have covered. Go to prairie.org and click on the donate button or mail your donation to P.O. Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota. Be sure to include the word kayak in the memo. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting.
Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brooking Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. Thank you.